0: Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature Podcast. To the extent that Christians believe in the power of their actions and the value of their ethics, it's understandable why they would interpret the Bible as a set of moral guidelines or the life of Jesus as a moral example. But this is nonsense. The Bible does not present a philosophy of life, a set of ethics, or a set of moral guidelines. Jesus is not a role model and the question, what would Jesus do, is not scriptural. In the Bible, there is no distance between the commandment and the steps taken by the disciple. Christ does not show us how to live. On the contrary, he demonstrates who his master is by his obedience to that master. This is what we imitate in Christ, his obedience to the Torah, with no provision for moral deliberation on our part. When you deliberate, what would Jesus do? You've already missed the bus. The real question is, who was Jesus' boss? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17.
1: You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 238 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We talk often about holding the entire canon together and reading the Bible as a complete canon from Genesis to Revelation, but at the same time, making sure to see what's happening specifically in the book you're reading in the specific locality. So you're looking at the entire canon and the order of books and the storyline that covers the narrative arc from Genesis to Revelation, but you also have to see what's happening in the book you are reading. Understanding the specifics of each individual book helps us understand the larger puzzle of the canon. And this section, the last half of chapter 3 in Matthew, presents us with a perfect opportunity to explain how the broader context and the very narrow and specific context of Matthew are brought to bear on our understanding of this section.
1: Right. We have this gardening metaphor that's been going throughout, where you have the tree, you have the root, you have the branches, you have the fruit. All these pieces of the image come together, and then you have the image that John was using last time of the gardener and what he was going to do with the trees. We also talked about the elements. You have the earth that the plant is in, but then you have the water that waters the plant, you have the fire, and you have the wind that then takes out the plant in the end when it's not bearing fruit. All of these images have to be born in mind. Just because we're moving on to the next scene, we can't forget what came before. Oftentimes people are taking texts out of context and then they lose the connection they have with these other images. I mean, this author is a literary author. He's not just writing down one thing after the next. Writers don't actually write that way. Only people who haven't written think that you can write that way. You have to build on what you wrote before, otherwise you're just explaining the same thing over and over again. At the same time, the
0: same applies to what has been said in other books. Because while Matthew is writing this book in a specific situation to a specific audience for specific reasons, at the same time, he has to also remember how the word righteousness is used everywhere else in the Bible. And of course, Matthew is very familiar with the Old Testament because Matthew is teaching the Old Testament as he writes the story of Jesus in his gospel. So it's both and, it's not either or. You have to account for both. But if you simply deal with the broader context and synthesize everything into one story, you're no longer dealing with what scripture actually says. And with respect to the broader context, as Father Paul has mentioned many times in our discussions for the Tuesday show, not only is it important to understand how a word functions elsewhere, you have to hold the term syntactically in order. So the first time that the word righteousness is used in the Bible is critical and primary for our understanding of righteousness in the Gospel of Matthew, and so on and so forth. So yes, Matthew's doing his own thing, but he can't do what he wants with the word righteousness. He has to account for how it was previously used. And to the extent that the Bible is systematic, he's not just accounting for, he is integrating that usage into his specific teaching
1: here. And since Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, then the rest of the New Testament is going to be building off of this image. This early use of righteousness in Matthew applies specifically to Jesus, which is interesting later on. How does that then play out? We're not gonna get into that today, but just keep in mind that the order that things appear in is significant in the Bible. You aren't allowed just to take this word from here and that word from there and bring them together and say what you want. They're in a particular order for the reason that the author put it in that order.
0: Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. Here, the New American Standard Bible creates a second verb that doesn't exist in the original text. The verb that is used to describe the movement of Jesus here is parahinome. It means either appear or arrive. There is no use of the verb erchome, which is typically translated as coming. So when it says that he arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John, it's a stretch. I don't think it has any bearing necessarily on the meaning of the verse, but to the extent that the erhomenos, the one who is coming, the coming Lord, is a technical term that has an eschatological dimension to it, a dimension of judgment. I wouldn't want anyone hearing this to assume that that's a theme in verse 13. It's not.
1: Right. The other thing that's interesting is that Jesus does not come in the same way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did because it specifically said there that they came from Jerusalem and Judea and all the region of Jordan. Whereas here, Jesus comes from Galilee. Why does it have to mention that Jesus came from Galilee? Is it important where Jesus came from? I think it's mostly important that he showed up at the Jordan. But for some reason, Matthew needed to include that he came from Galilee. The important point is that he did not come from Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus If you look at his life so far, he keeps avoiding Jerusalem. He was almost born in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. And the wise men almost went to Jerusalem after they saw him, but they avoided Jerusalem. Then he went to Egypt and he came back and he went straight to Galilee. He did not go through Jerusalem. And now that he's been in Galilee and he's a grown person and he's coming down to Jordan, he is not coming from Jerusalem. Matthew is already... In the end of chapter 3 here, trying to make a strong point that Jesus is, as we saw from the very beginning, not from David, and is not from Jerusalem. We have to pay attention to these details. He's coming in a very specific way because of the path that he's traveling, not in that he comes to Jordan. All kinds of people come to Jordan. But only one person the author mentions came from Galilee, and that's Jesus.
0: But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John, in my view here, is missing the point. This is not about the worthiness of Jesus. And this is where the broader context comes into play. The word righteousness, Chaosini, has a function. It's a judicial function, meaning that whatever one is guilty or innocent of, what the court declares applies. You know the joke, everyone in prison is innocent. Maybe true, but it's immaterial. Now, when they joke that way in American television shows, what they mean is, you know, who believes a criminal? Everyone claims they're innocent. But from a legal perspective, there's more going on there because even if they are innocent, it's immaterial. Because they've been declared unrighteous. They've been declared guilty by the court. So here, Jesus himself, irrespective of his purity, is not righteous until he is declared righteous. So there is a technicality in baptism that needs to take place. The baptism needs to happen. The Father needs to rule on the status of Jesus in order for him not only to be declared righteous, but to be adopted
1: as the Messiah. If only John remained consistent. Don't forget in the last scene when he was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said the plant is going to be cut down if it's not bearing fruit. There's this image of the water that waters the plant, and if the plant still doesn't produce fruit, then that's when it's cut down, burned, or the wind takes it out. That's when the the judgment comes with the fire and the Holy Spirit, the holy wind. What tree does not need to be watered? There is no such thing as a tree that doesn't need to be watered. It's not the bad trees need to be watered and the good trees don't need water. No, it's the bad trees don't produce fruit when they're watered and the good trees do produce fruit when they're watered, but you water the good tree along with the bad tree. It doesn't matter. So why John would rank which tree should be receiving water, he himself is having problem understanding what this mercy is that comes from God in God's provision for all and for the needs of everything. When Richard talks
0: about the gardening and the water, the water imagery in Matthew, and how it relates to the fruitfulness of Jesus, the fruitfulness of his ministry, That's specific here to Matthew, but you have a broader context that I alluded to. You have the basics of the function of the father declaring someone righteous. You have the basics of the Roman household and this notion of adoption. Now it appears first here in Matthew, but it's also elsewhere in the New Testament. All these things are coming together, but the watering is very interesting as contrasted with the elements earlier. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So even though Jesus is senior to John, he is not senior to his father. His father has to declare him as righteous. His father is the source of all righteousness. And when he is obedient to his father, he fulfills all righteousness Because the righteousness that he is manifesting is the righteousness of his father's teaching. It's a fancy way of saying that Jesus came to fulfill the Torah. That's what's happening here. And the Torah is an instruction. And Jesus has to do what it says. He has to obey his father. So if you make it about the identity of Jesus and his purity, you're going to be puzzled and confused and misunderstand what's happening here.
1: Right. I mean, the fact that Jesus is senior to John, but not senior to his father. That's exactly what's going on here. John misunderstands. He is thinking that, oh, if Jesus is senior to me, then he should be baptizing me, not me him. And what Jesus is saying is your baptism, John, is not from you and it's not from me, it's from God alone. We both have to submit to the baptism of God because we're both junior to God. Yes, I might be senior to you, but you have to allow it to be so. So, Jesus speaks to John as a senior to a junior, but what does he say? He says, submit and allow this to happen because the baptism, like you said, Father, does not come from John. It comes from the Father of Jesus. People
0: always talk about following the example of Jesus and you even have this silly acronym, what would Jesus do? It's silly because Jesus does not come to show us how to live. He doesn't. He doesn't come to set an example of how to understand and act out scripture. He doesn't. Jesus comes for one purpose, and it's clearly evident here in verse 15. He comes to show us whom we should submit to. I might be senior to you, just like familias is senior to the economos, who's senior to the other slaves, or whatever. He might be senior to John, but he's still somewhere in the pecking order of God's household, and he has to show the rest of the household who the real master is.
1: It's like the patrafamilias wants to give money to one of the slaves. And the slave says, who am I that I could take money from my master? And the patrafamilias says, well, my father told me I had to give this to you. I'm giving it to you. So please take it because you and I both have to submit to my father. I don't have the right to not give it to you. If you refuse it, I still have to give it to you because I can't listen to your word over my father's word.
0: When a junior priest presides over the liturgy in the presence of senior clergy, the one presiding is the senior. It's functional. The one who stands before the holy table and presides over the service is the senior priest. It's just how it works. Now, it doesn't mean that you ignore the seniority of your brothers standing around you, but in the form of the service, you are the one presiding. I understood this, Richard, in a very practical and real sense on the day of my ordination when my father came to me to take a blessing from me. Now, How can I give a blessing to my father? Do you really think that I thought I was giving a blessing to my father? No, my father was expressing his respect for the office that I was assigned to. And at the same time, it was a gesture of affection. He was very happy and proud that I was ordained but on a more basic level my father would kiss the hand of any priest junior or senior to him because that's how you act towards the priest it's functional it doesn't matter that he's senior to me this is what's happening jesus has to be baptized because that's what he has to do right now that is his assigned function
1: and that's the fulfillment of the righteousness understanding that the baptism the provision the water comes from one source, and that's God. I mean, in the same way, of course your father could bless you. But the thing is, when your father's in church and the bishop is there, the bishop assigned you to be the one to give blessings. You don't have the right to take a blessing from your father because your bishop says it's your job to give the blessing, not from you, because the bishop says it comes from you.
0: That's exactly
1: the point. And
0: if, as a priest, I start playing the game of humility, oh, who am I to give you a blessing? Oh, please don't kiss my hand. I'm transgressing the authority of my bishop, who is my father in an ecclesial context. I cannot apologize for the blessing of the bishop, which is the blessing that I have been given permission to share with the community.
1: I have no right. And recently someone asked me about this trope that goes through, especially Genesis, where you have the blessing going upon the younger of the brothers, and this happens so commonly. This is simply to show that the blessing comes from God. It does not come from birth order. God assigns the blessing to whom he assigns the blessing. God is showing his prerogative as the God of all. You are not born into the blessing. It's just that God said the blessing goes to the firstborn. Unless God says otherwise.
0: Or unless you live in the U.S. when everyone is blessed. There is no distinction between the oldest and the youngest. Well, that's why all your children are confused. Because everyone's the same and everyone is special and... No one knows what it means to make themselves small in the presence of someone else. Just keep going down that path and see how it works out.
1: I woke up this morning. I told myself that I was blessed and I was good with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy for you.
0: (laughs) After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him as a dove and lighting upon him. Er Erchome here could also mean arriving upon him falling upon him. I think the point here is that the dove is descending and manifesting the father's coronation of Jesus as his son. Jesus has been baptized, the father is sitting on his throne, the judge, and pronouncing
1: a judgment. The text says there's a voice, but we haven't heard yet what the voice says. And I'm gonna stick with this gardening metaphor because it doesn't say that a dove Came upon him. It says the Spirit of God descended like a dove coming upon him. Then why the dove? Why not just say the Spirit of God came upon him? What is it like a dove? What does that even mean? Well, it just reminds me of these images from the Psalms and from Isaiah, where we have the birds living in the tree, the healthy tree, who's watered by the Lord, watered by Torah, and whose limbs spread out so all the birds can live. Within that tree, a tree that has birds living in it is seeing the prosperity that's given to it by God. This is an image used in Psalm 1 where it says his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law does he meditate day and night and he shall be like a tree planted in the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall not wither. And in other places in Isaiah, we have this prosperous tree where the birds go and live the branches. Again, I'm going to stick with this image of the tree. The opposite of the tree that doesn't bear fruit, that needs to be cut down and burned, is the one that keeps growing and growing and growing till the birds are able to build nests. And here we have the Spirit of God and the approval of God and the water of God allowing this prosperity to come upon Jesus.
0: And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so here the voice now is actually declaring that Jesus is fruitful, Jesus is righteous, and the Lord is pleased with him. And although there isn't a terminological connection to Genesis, it still feels to me like the Lord is satisfied with what he has achieved in Jesus and the way that he saw that it was good over and over and over again in Genesis. The word that's used in the Septuagint is kalon, kalos. Here it's evdokia, but the Lord is pleased. He's satisfied with his own judgment and his own work manifest in his son.
1: Right, because he is the one that is the tree that's going to bear fruit. It's the one with the branches that hold the birds. You and I have mentioned many times in the Roman Empire, a child was not simply born the son of a father. The father had to declare in every case a child to be his son. This is God legally declaring him to be his son. Now, we've also mentioned before, declaring someone to be your son has nothing to do with genetics. You can declare a man your son at age 23. That 23-year-old is now your son because you declared it legally. This has a very particular purpose in the Roman Empire, and that's for inheritance, Your son is your son, not because you love him and you want to read him stories at night. He's your son because you pass along the inheritance to him. This means that now he's declaring him as the one who will receive the inheritance of God. Now, the inheritance of God comes as the fruit of Torah, which we're going to see later on, because the inheritance, what is the inheritance of the Roman Empire? It's your chunk of land. That's the inheritance that you pass along. We can't avoid this gardening metaphor. He is the one who is the fruitful tree and he is going to receive the inheritance of the land that's what belongs to him and also don't forget he's the one who came out of egypt in order to come into the land like it all comes back to this point he is well pleased in him now is he well pleased in him because jesus was such a good boy he gets a pat on the back and that's why he earned that no he didn't earn anything he hasn't done anything yet We skipped over his whole childhood. He is simply well-pleased because this is the grace in the same way that Noah received grace before the flood. Why? Because Noah did so many good things? Maybe, but the author didn't bother to tell us. I think it's just because God decided. And so here God decided Jesus is the one.
0: What's striking about that observation, Richard, is that without hierarchy in this section of Matthew, there is no possibility for grace. I hinted at this with the problem we have with our children and our families, but I want to make it explicit before we wrap up this week's episode. There is something to be said about the fact that Jesus the senior is putting himself under the junior. If you don't have a concept of senior and junior, you can't have this gesture of humility, this gesture of weakness, this abdication of individual ego to the master who controls the situation. So in order for Jesus, I want everyone to listen carefully to what I'm saying. In order for Jesus to express his submission to his father, he has to make himself smaller than John. And in order for it to work correctly, John has to be the lesser of the two characters in the narrative. How can you teach that to your kids when you want to convince everybody that there's no difference between the oldest and the youngest? You're going to create a bunch of prima donnas who don't know how to make themselves small. They'll never know how to be obedient in a way that's useful for God's purpose.
1: Jesus is subservient to his father. I don't want people going and saying, is Jesus of the same essence with the father and this kind of thing. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the way that the Roman law functions and what it means to be a son in this context what the fathers do later with that we're not talking about right now what we're talking about is what's going on in this text that jesus is subservient and he's received the grace of his father that's the point of this passage
0: but the grace and this is the point i'm trying to stress richard the grace is only functional in the passage because jesus isn't exercising any power which is Paul's teaching. If Jesus comes in and John is unworthy of him because of who Jesus is and how holy he is and how pure he is, if that were the narrative, then the grace of the Father would not be operational in the story. Jesus did not raise himself. Jesus did not achieve anything of his own accord. Jesus simply taught us which master is the correct master so that that master could control the situation, which is what allows grace to be functional in the narrative. It's very subtle, it's very difficult to understand, and that's why people still have silly arguments. Am I saved by grace? Am I saved by works? Neither! You are saved by the good pleasure of God the Father should he decide to shed his grace upon you the way he did for his Son, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, the dominion, and the majesty. Christ is in our midst.
1: He has never shall me. You've just heard the Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.